Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. Um, I want to start this morning by uh, doing a little stepping into an imagination station, if you will. Um, any adventures and Odyssey fans out there might catch a reference. If not, please disregard. But regardless, you can use your imagination. So here we go. I want you to um, close your eyes, if you'd be willing, and imagine a very nice room. This is, a, this is your perfect room. It's perfectly suited for what you want. You know, maybe it's a really nice view. Maybe it's a shelf full of books and a couch full of pillows. Maybe it's got a, an amazing entertainment system that you've always dreamed of. You're in this room. But there's also a very special ability. This room has a very special ability. This room can give you your deepest wish. Your deepest wish. Now, I'm not talking about what you think you want. I'm saying this room will search your heart and will give you what you most deeply wish for. You most deeply wish for. Now, you can open your eyes if you want. Let me ask you this question. Would you jump right into that room? Would you go right in? fully confident that you know exactly what your heart most deeply wants? Or would you pause for a moment to think, maybe I don't want what I think I want. Maybe there's actually something operating below my consciousness that I maybe don't uh, don't see as clearly as I think I do. And so I think... We don't know this as clearly as we think we do. I think when there's that gap between what we want and what we actually do, and I'm sure we can experience that on, all of us can relate to that on some level, that we experience a gap between what we want to do and what we actually do, that it's in that gap that that um, ignorance is getting exposed a little bit. That there's things, there's a level operating in our, there's a level operating in our heart that is kind of unknown to us. And so I, it was pointed out to me recently, if you go look at the Gospel of John, this is especially clear in the red letter, um, the red letter Bible where Jesus' words are in red letters. If you open the Gospel of John, you don't have to do it right now, but if you look, the very first words that Jesus speaks, the very first words that he speaks is a question. And the question to his disciples is this, what do you want? What do you want? They're excited about the commotion of John the Baptist and things that are going on with this kind of weird guy and the things he's saying out in the wilderness. And they're all wrestling up. And he looks at them. And before he says anything else to them, he says, What do you want? He doesn't ask them, What do you know? He doesn't ask them, What do you think? He doesn't ask them, What do you believe? He asks them the question, What do you want? And you'll notice as, as you go through the Gospel of John that Jesus asks these kinds of questions all the time. Jesus asks questions all the time to people as they're interacting with them. He's trying to expose in them what they're actually after. So at, at, the, at the pool of Bethesda, it's this healing pool where people, people went to get healed. And there's this person waiting to get healed. And, and he, he looks at them and he says, do you, do you want to be healed? Which is a, kind of a weird question. This person was... Injured, 
They, had, they were suffering their whole life from this injury, and they're at this place where they can finally be healed. And he looks at them and he says, do you want to be healed? Another, another time, um, the, a lot of, Jesus is starting to gather a lot of followers, and a lot of them are starting to question whether they actually want to follow him, and they start to leave. They're, they're leaving, and then his, the 12 that were the closest to Jesus, they were considering this as well, and he looks at them. He says, do you want to go away as well? Is that what you want? And of course, um, a slightly different version of the question, but I think it's deeply connected. At the, right at the last, one of the last interactions Jesus has with Peter and his disciples, he asks Peter the same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? So, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't just interested in having his disciples believe right things or do good things. Jesus is interested in their desires. Jesus wants their love. God wants our love. He doesn't just want our right thinking or good behavior. He wants our affection, our love. And so... That's the question I hope you can even just ask yourself leaving, if you forget everything else, I hope you can just hear that question from Jesus being asked to you, do you love me? Do you love me? And I think that following Jesus is as much about hungering and thirsting after him as it is about knowing and believing. I heard it recently that you can't think your way into holiness. Can't, you can't acquire holiness by, a, by a, acquiring a PhD. There's a lot more going on in that. And to be a Christian is to align our loves and our longings with God's loves and longings. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's alignment. Our heart is in line with what God wants and what God loves and what God says is beautiful. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking with some experts in the law. They're called Pharisees. And he's talking with them, and they have this great idea, we're going to trap Jesus. We've got this great question, he's never going to be able to answer it. They're the experts, they know all the details of the law, what the Old Testament says about how you're supposed to live. And they come up with this question, and they say, Jesus, what is the most important law? Which is the most important commandment in the entire law of Moses? You you know how big the Old Testament is? There's tons of laws in there, tons of things that God is asking us to do. What is the most important thing that that we're supposed to do? And I just want to say, how revealing is this of the heart of God? That Jesus can't even give them one. He, He has to attach another to it. He can't separate these two things because he doesn't just give them one answer. At first he says, he says, This is my answer. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's what he says. The most important thing you can do is to love me with all of who you are. That's the most important thing you can do. But then he says the second is equally as important. (laughs) You can't even there. It's like he said, this is the greatest, but this is actually equal. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. He can't disconnect love of God with love of neighbor. They're so connected to each other. And so how revealing of the heart of God is that? When, when someone asks God, what's the most important thing we could ever do? God says, love me and love each other. That's the most important thing that you could do. That needs to guide a lot of how we think about 
our faith being lived out. And so he gives this answer, love me with all your being, love your neighbor to the same degree that you love yourself. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we're in the middle of a series right now. We're calling it The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange, because what we're, what we're trying to think through is, is how the fall, how when humanity stepped away from God, stepped out of how we're meant to live, how we're meant to operate, we exchanged something. And this language of exchange is used throughout Scripture, but it says we exchange, we're talk, talking about what we exchange what is good and beautiful and true for what is evil, ugly, and a lie. That when we stepped away from God, we exchanged everything that's good and beautiful and true. That's how we're supposed to live, and that's how our, how our heart is supposed to operate out of. But we, we exchange that for something else. But also, more importantly, on the cross, Jesus takes on himself what is evil, ugly, and a lie, and he offers us afresh what is good, beautiful, and true. So we want to think through, and we're looking at how this exchange really takes place on, on so many different levels, that there's a lot going on here that, that this, our sin affects us on so many different levels. And so this morning we're talking about love for selfishness. Love for selfishness. We have, a, we have traded love of God for love of self. That's what happens when we decided to step away from God. We've traded love of God for love of self. And so this is actually a very countercultural message right now, I think. We live in an increasingly self-focused generation. We live, of course, in a selfie generation. We like to take pictures of ourselves. We're increasingly self-focused. And so the wisdom of this age, I think, um, is actually that you aren't loving yourself enough. Your biggest problem, so they say, is that you are not loving yourself enough. I've heard it said in this way before, you won't be able to love others until you truly love yourself. And so I get, and I can just say, I, I get what that sentiment's trying to say, but I think it's, it's a bad way to say it. <laughs> I think that's more speaking to value and, uh, and identity because the Bible never talks about, uses a language of love of self. And telling us to love ourselves more is such bad advice. Um, such bad advice. In, in Scripture, and as we'll see this morning, the antidote to not loving yourself enough is actually to love God more. As you love God more and as you love others more, you become more content with who you are and more satisfied with, with who you are. So actually, the idea of not loving yourself is very countercultural. And so the idea here this morning is that we're made to love. We're made to love. That part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we have a, as humans, we have a unique ability to love one, one another that no other organism has. Um, and you might say, that's not true. My dog loves me. Um, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the reason your dog seems to love you is because it's a pack animal. And it literally thinks that you're top dog. That's why it loves you, because it thinks you're the leader. And it will do whatever it wants, or it will do whatever it can so that you are served best, because you're top dog. That's affection of a dog. That's the fundamental difference between cats and dogs, actually. Cats are solitary animals, right? And they don't care about you at all. Only to the degree that you can serve their purposes do they love you. If they had a chance, they would kill you, if that would be beneficial to them. 
that's the difference between cats and dogs. Dogs will live to make your life better. Cats would kill you if they had a chance. So love, even though we can get some sense of that from animals, love, and I think we know this to be true, like love is a uniquely human quality because God has given it to us by making us in his image. And, the, and our heart and the desires that come out of it are, are really, it's a, I've heard it said, it's an engine driving us forward. Our loves move us forward. That we're, um, you know, the sharks don't have gills. They have to move forward in order to get um, water moving through and passing through. They actually have to be moving forward all the time. Love is this thing that kind of moves us forward. It's an engine that drives us. We're constantly looking for things to love. And it's also kind of like a homing device. It points us in a direction. It leads us. And so it drives us forward and it's telling us something about what we're made for. And so the problem never is that we're loving too deeply. The problem is that our loves have become disordered. We've changed, we've exchanged the way in which we're supposed to love. John 3, famous passage, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in God's one and only Son. And then listen to this, verse 19, it says, This is the verdict. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light. What's, how does he sum up the problem? Light came into darkness, and we loved darkness. That's the verdict. And St. Augustine, he's a very significant theologian and philosopher in the history of the church. He lived in the 4th century. He was someone that struggled tremendously with desire. Um, he, had a, he had a lot of struggles with desire. He's got a really um, powerful book called Confessions, um, where he talks a lot about this. But he has this great insight. And he thought a lot about desire and love. And this was his insight, that we are shaped most by what we love most. We are shaped most by what we love most. And so if you want to be shaped by God, you have to love him most. You have to. And when we don't love him most, it affects every other expression of our love. It affects every other expression of our love, namely our love for others and our love for self, actually. And so the problem of this exchange that takes place in our heart, this disordering that has happened, is it takes place here, but it gets expressed in here and in here and in every way that, you know, that we live out our lives. We're affected by this exchange that has taken place in our heart. And so I want to look at just, there's, you can, we could really talk about dozens and dozens of ways. I want to just highlight two, two things here in which I think you can see this getting lived out. The first is our, and how we relate to the world, our relationship to the world. And again, this could be teased out a lot of, in a lot of different ways, but just to highlight one in particular is our, I think there's an increasingly, and there's increasing an idolization of comfort and especially in the West, 
especially in our culture, that love of self often gets expressed through our love of comfort. You know, comfort has become something that's so sought after in our culture that it's almost offensive not to offer someone comfort. Or if you threaten my comfort in in any way, then I, I am offended by that because this is something I have a right to. You know, in in the church, I think what happens is that we equate blessing from God with our own personal comfort. That's how how we often talk about it. Blessing is only connected to increased comfort in our life. And comfort is almost spoken of as if it were a right. And, And this is, I think, what can subtly happen in our thinking. If God's not, God owes us comfort. If God's not giving you comfort, then he's actually dropping the ball in, in his duties to you. And this is an expression, I think, of, of this exchange taking place in our, in our influencing our thinking and how we think about others and how we think about God. And so please don't, please hear this this morning. When you decide to follow Jesus, when you decide, I'm going to sincerely pursue reordering my loves, to make him ultimate, you give up the right to live comfortably. Dying to yourself is not a comfortable process. You give up the right to live up comfortably. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that God is against your comfort per se. I'm not saying that it's God's intention to make your life as uncomfortable and miserable as possible. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. That God's you know, God is for, in a lot of ways, for our financial flourishing. But just know, just, but God also knows that our comfort can sometimes keep us from trusting and loving him more. And where true joy and where true life is found is, that, is when we're loving and trusting him most. And if comfort is the thing that's going to get in our way, God lovingly will take that from us or not give it to us. Because he knows what's best for us. And so loving God most means being willing to get uncomfortable in our living standards, uncomfortable in our generosity, maybe. We can be generous, but what does it mean to be uncomfortable in our generosity? Getting uncomfortable in our social lives, maybe sacrificing our preference of people that it's most easy to hang out with because we want to show the love of God to people that it's harder to get along with. We have to sacrifice comfortable, comfort, or comfort in our families, in our workplaces, in our conversations, in our vulnerability. All of these things are uncomfortable to us, but it may be the very means by which God is going to ex- push something out of the way so that we can learn to trust and love him more. And if we love ourselves most in any of these contexts, then we will be unwilling to get uncomfortable. And so the expression of this exchange in our hearts comes out in our indecision, in our inaction, in our priorities. We are not deciding to do this. We are not willing to do that. It's in our inability, our indecision, it can affect us in our priorities. The second kind of expression I just want to highlight how this plays out is in our personal relationships. Uh, Tim Keller has a book on marriage, and he talks a lot about the distinction between consumer and covenant relationships. I don't know if you've heard this language before. Consumer and covenant. He says this, 
Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. And so today, increasingly so, if we stay connected to people as long as they're meeting our particular needs. As long as they're meeting our particular needs and then that the cost of being in relationship with them is sufficient. That we can handle the cost. But as soon as the cost goes a little too is a little too hard on us, then we're willing to step back and say that's that's too much. And so you know, when we cease to make a profit off of a relationship, it requires more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back. Then we cut our losses and, and get out of relationships. Um, sociologists have called this the commodification of relationships. The commodification. And so I'm not saying, again, I don't want to take, don't, please don't take anything I'm saying to the extreme. I'm not saying there aren't contexts in which there are unhealthy relationships that we need to get out of. I'm not saying that there are not even situations where covenants we make with people need to be broken. I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions and extremes, but I'm saying the essence of a relationship and how we should think about how we interact with our, with our friends and with the church and with our spouse is, is in terms of covenant, that I'm committed to you because I'm committed to you, regardless of how that satisfies my personal needs. Because when we love God as ultimate in our lives, the love of God is intrinsically connected to others. The quality of his love becomes the quality of our love. The characteristics of his love become the characteristics of our love. Our loves become the same. And he has loved us this way, and so we, that comes out in our loves for each other. And not only that, but I would just say that the love of God in situations like this that are especially hard to love people in difficult situations, God's love becomes a tremendous resource for us. God's love becomes a wellspring that we can draw from when we're not receiving love from other people. And I don't, I don't know where else you can get that from. I don't know what else we, what is offered in this world other than a supernatural love that is available to us at any point, a love that is so much deeper than we could ever ask for or need. And so this exchange in our hearts can get expressed through inaction and indecision, but it can also get exchanged in our hearts through our actions and our decisions. How we relate to people, what we, what we do, how we decide to treat them, and our priorities. It, it can ex- express itself in that way as well. And so what is the solution? What's, wh- how can we deal with this? Um, how can, we, how can we think through this issue? Because on some levels, on, on some level, it feels like you can't really change your love. Like it doesn't, have you ever, do you think of that in that way? Like, you know, you just love what you love and there's nothing you can really do about it because that's just how you are. You know, that, I think I've heard that idea before. I don't think that's true. And I think we need to consider dealing with this problem in at least two ways. There's probably more we can think about this, but um, the first way to think about this is outwardly. Um, dealing with our love outwardly, I'm going to just say this, so 
hold on um, before until the end. But I think dealing with our love outwardly has limited, but is limited in what how it can affect us. But I think it actually has a, a lot more significant or impact on how we love each other than we realize. And I'm I'm reading a book right now um, called "You Are What You Love" by James K. A. Smith, and really challenging my thinking. I'd really recommend that book. To all, to all of you, but it plays a much larger shape. Our outward actions and routines play a much larger part in shaping our loves and desires than we realize. And so, like I said at the beginning, we're not always aware of what's going on in our hearts, right? We're not always aware. Just as an example, the idea of consumerism. This is a powerful force at work in our culture. We, you are affected by consumerism. You are. You can say, I'm not, but you are. <laughs> You do not think your way into consumerism. You don't think I'm going to really want to buy a lot of things. That's not the way you get to that point. You know, you are trained by advertisements that are targeted at your desires, by the way. That's how advertisers advertise. The rhythm, the routines of the shopping, of the mall. You know, we, we live in an economic system that is driven by this idea that we need to keep buying more and more. All of these things, whether we're thinking consciously about them or not, are influencing us. And what happens is we just have this desire, this impulse to buy more and to buy more and to buy more. We didn't think our way to that point. It's the things that were influenced us externally that actually had a part in shaping our desire towards that certain thing. And I think we actually learn to love more than we think through imitation and practice than we realize. The New Testament often talks about being imitators, or to be an imitator of Paul, to be an imitator of Jesus. And we're, and we're commanded to even, like, even practice things like um, kindness and compassion and gentleness. And we practice these things. And I think a part of me has always felt like I never liked that idea of being an imitator. It seems really um, unauthentic that I would just imitate. But this is, what I've, this is what I'm realizing, I think, is that imitation is actually a form to, uh, a, a pathway to authentic living. That, and being intentional about the rhythms and routines and, of our lives, it actually plays a big part in making those feelings authentic in our lives. Um, James K.A. Smith, the, the author I mentioned earlier, has a quote. I just want to read it for you. It's a long quote. It's on the screen. He says, now here's a crucial insight for Christian formation and discipleship. Not only is this learning by practice the way our hearts are correctly calibrated, but it is also the way our loves and longings are misdirected and miscalibrated. Not because our intellect has been hijacked by bad ideas, but because our desires have been captivated by rival visions of flourishing. And that happens through practice, not propaganda. Our desires are caught more than they are taught. All kinds of cultural rhythms and routines are, in fact, rituals that function as pedagogies of desire, precisely because they tacitly and covertly train us to love a certain version of the kingdom. They teach us to long for some rendition of the good life. These aren't just things that we do, They do something to us. These aren't just things that we do. They do something to us. And so the word liturgy is often used specifically to think about the order and how you formulate a a religious service. 
Um, so you think through how we, and this denomination that we're a part of, we don't, in this church specifically, we don't talk a lot about liturgy per se or have a very ordered, structured service in the same way that if you went to a Catholic church or an Anglican church would. But the whole idea is that you can't escape having a liturgy. Even if you're not intentionally thinking through and ordering it, you will have one. Every time we have a liturgy here at Cornerstone, it's inescapable. We choose to do things in a certain way and in a certain order. And there's, you can't escape doing that. So the question is, are, we having, are, we, are there good liturgies in place that are, that are shaping and forming our desires in a certain way? Jesus, there's a couple things that Jesus told us to do regularly. One of those things is communion. That we practice communion. Doing that action does something to our desires. Gathering here every week to be together with his people is a liturgy of your life. It's something that you're, you're, you're forming in your week that does something to you. It's, it's much more than just going to church because that's what God wants you to do. Gathering here has a huge, plays a huge part in shaping your priorities and, and uh, um, affections. And so, um, talk, we, I think we need to really think through and taking a, uh, what I've heard called a liturgical audit of your life. A liturgical audit of your life. What are the rhythms and routines of your home? What are the rhythms and routines in your leisure time, in your, in your workplace, in your family time, in your, in your week? They affect us more than we realize. They aren't just things we do. They do something to us. And so outwardly, we can do things to help shape and form our, our loves. But again... Outward action is limited. Of course it's limited. It might shape and redirect inward desires, but does it create them? I think we need something much bigger than that to actually recreate them and reform them. And we've used this image before, but I want to keep using it because I think it's really helpful. That our hearts are like a piece of metal. Now, if you just try to hammer a piece of metal... You can bend it a little bit, but eventually it's just going to break. It's going to snap. Metal doesn't work that way, and our hearts don't work that way. But if you warm a piece of metal up, if you can heat it up to a certain point, that it's, it melts, and you can reshape it to any, any shape that you want, really. That's how our hearts work. That's why you, will never, you won't really come to appreciate grace if if you primarily think of following Jesus as a set of rules to obey, you won't fully grasp what that is. Our hearts need to be melted by something first. And I mentioned this early at the begin, earlier of the message that, that one of the last interactions that Jesus has with Peter, he asks him the same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it seems clear... Commentators are in agreement that this, that the reason Jesus asks Peter this question three times is because of an interaction they had before Jesus was crucified. You know, it's earlier in the day and Jesus is saying, you guys, hey, listen, you guys have been following me for three years. You say you're committed to me, but listen, here's the truth. You're going to abandon me. You're going to abandon me. And, and the disciples are, no way, we're not going to do that. You know, we love you, Jesus. 
We love you. And he talks with Peter specifically. And he says, Peter, you're going to actually do this three times before the day is even done. And Peter says, no way. I'm not going to do this. I'm not. And then later that day, just after Jesus is arrested, you know, probably hours later, the people come to Peter and they say, do you, are you with this guy? Peter says, I don't, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. And he says that three times. I, I don't even know the man. Jesus, before he went to the cross, saw this in Peter's heart, and he still went to the cross for him. Jesus sees this in our own hearts. This is the quality of God's love, that he sees this in our hearts, and yet he still died for us. Jesus saw Peter's lack of commitment and loyalty. He saw his abandonment. He saw his disregard. He saw his self-centeredness. And yet he loved him. Jesus sees this in your heart too. He sees it in my heart too. And yet he loves us. This is how we know what love is. 1 John 3.16 says that Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. And when we fix our eyes on that kind of love and grace, God will change our affections. That is the only thing big enough, I'm convinced, in this world to actually change our hard hearts. It's the only thing big enough to reorientate our heart's desires, to reorder our loves. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. That's why we love. That's how we love. Because he first loved us. And that's another reason why we keep gathering here on Sunday mornings. Because we need to keep reminding ourselves. You can do that in your daily life, of course, every day. But we come together as a body and we remind ourselves of this news every week. That's why we do this thing called church gathering together like this. We need to be reminded over and over again. Because that is the news and the message that's big enough to reorder reshape, reorientate our hearts as they were always uh, designed to be. And so I want to close by reading a prayer that Kevin started with, actually. Um, Philippians 1, 9 to 11. You heard it already. I'll read it once more. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now what's interesting is that if you, like me, the first time you heard that prayer, or even as you read it now, you might think that Paul is praying that we may know. That we would increase in our knowledge and wisdom so that we would know what to do. If only we had more knowledge and wisdom, then we would know what to do. But actually, his prayer is pretty much the exact opposite. Do you see that? He says, I pray that we would love in order to know. That we would love in order to know. There is a sense in which, I believe, love precedes knowledge. So he's, how can you discern what is the best in life? 
That's what he's praying about. How can you discern what is the best in life? You need to love most what is most worthy of love. That's what we need. That's what we're designed to be. And that's when we keep seeking after that, our life will be the best. (laughs) That's the best life. That's the good life. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray the prayer of Paul here this morning again. That God, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that you would increase our love, that we would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight into your love for us. God, I confess that I love darkness. There's so many ways in which I choose darkness over light, choose myself over you, God. I recognize my own blindness, God. We declare our inability here this morning. And God, we just thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that, that you love us, even, as you, even when you see our, our hearts as they truly are. God, would you keep helping us understand that, give us depth of insight and knowledge into your love. We need that so desperately. God, wherever we're coming from this morning, wherever, whether this is the first time we're hearing this or the the millionth time we've heard this news, God, would you make this new and fresh for us again? So God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you want what's best for us. Thank you that we can trust you even in our discomfort. We can trust your wisdom and intentions. Would you help us to grow in that again this morning? We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.